Welcome to Industry Focus, the podcast that dives into a different sector of the stock market every day. It's Friday, July 1st, and we're talking tech and value investing. I'm your host, Dylan Lewis, and I'm joined on Skype by Motley Fool Premium Analyst John Rotanzi. John, how's it going? I'm doing good, Dylan. How are you doing back at headquarters? Doing all right. It's cake day here, so I'm pretty oh, excited. Man. Miss cake day. Yeah, it's one of the worst parts about being remote, I guess, right? You don't have cake day or pizza day. It's right up there at the top of the list, for sure. <laughs> So earlier this month, I did a show on the price-to-earnings ratio, the P.E. ratio, uh, with Fool Premium Analyst Simon Erickson on that episode. Uh, it's called Tech, All It's Cracked Up to P.E. You'll have to excuse the pun um, if you want to try to find that in the archives. Uh, Simon is a high-growth investor, and he thinks about valuation a little bit differently than some folks do. Um, after doing the show, I realized not every investor has the same time horizon or the risk appetite for that type of approach, so I wanted to do a show detailing another way to think about P.E.s and valuation. Thankfully, John Rotanti, uh, who's one of our premium analysts for Inside Value and Motley Fool One Services, was happy to hop on the show and help me break it down. Uh, John, thank you so much for waking up early over in Colorado so you could Skype into the show. Before we get too far into things, uh, you want to give some some background for our listeners, just a little info on who you are and how you got here? Uh, sure. Um, really happy to be on the show. Thanks for having me. I actually celebrated my uh, two-year full anniversary. A few days ago, so I've been with the Motley Fool for two years. Uh, before that, I got uh, an MBA from uh, Tulane University. I worked on Wall Street for a while, uh, and then I served uh, for three years as a fellow at the Mario Gabelli Center for Global Security Analysis. So, obviously, a legendary value investor there. Learned tons working there, and uh, I wrote a book at one point in time back in 2013. It's called a manual on common stock investing. Just a really uh, introductory level look at uh, what the stock market is, what a stock is, and and maybe some some ways to invest in the stock market. Yeah. And I've been at the Fool for two years now, and I love working on Inside Value and Motley Fool One. You know, it's funny, John. I actually just celebrated <clears throat> my two year Fool anniversary as well because we started work on the same day. Yes, we did. <laughs> uh, congratulations! I remember going out to a to a new full lunch or something on that first day. So, I remember it clearly. Yeah, it was me and the ADP cast, which was a lot of fun. Yep. Um, so, John, you obviously have a lot of value credentials. Um, you've certainly spent your time honing your investing craft. Um, can you start a little bit just about explaining your mentality when it comes to investing and how you think about it? Sure. So, I actually started uh, when I was a freshman in college. I'm a 35 now, so it's it's been a while, and and I and I think my strategy uh, has shifted over time. At one point, I was what I would consider a um, traditional deep value investor, and now I've shifted more to focusing on on high quality companies. So, I guess just one thing is uh, there's a value spectrum, and so on one side of the spectrum, you have traditional deep value investors um, looking to uh, by the proverbial dollar for 50 cents. And then on the other end of the spectrum, you have uh, the Warren Buffett and Charlie Munger style, which is that they're willing to pay a fair price for a great business if they think that business can increase its in intrinsic value over time. Um, so using the same example, the deep value investor wants to buy a dollar for 50 cents, and then they'll most likely sell it as it approaches that $1 value. Um, a quality investor that's willing to pay a fair price will pay a dollar for a dollar of value today if they think that business will be worth 
two, three, four, or even five dollars down the road. So there's a, a nice spectrum there. The deep value folks, um, they've been super successful. It works. A lot of a lot of them have um, really uh, generated a fortune for themselves over the years. The quality end of the spectrum works as well. I'd say the deep value folks focus more on the margin of safety and the other end of the spectrum focuses more on the size of the moat or the competitive advantage. Um, so over time I've probably shifted, but I'm definitely always looking for value for sure. And to contextualize that spectrum and the differences there within the value investing niche, um, within the PE ratio, you know, I think when you're talking about the deep value kind of cigar butt investing, um, you're looking more at companies that are relative to the market pretty cheap, right? Or relative to competitors pretty cheap. Um, yeah. Whereas if you're thinking more about quality businesses, these might be businesses that are trading above market PEs, but the opportunity there um, is maybe being undervalued by the market in the eyes of the investor. Yeah, Dylan, that's that's exactly right. So if we just take a step back and think about what the price to earnings ratio is, um, I think in in a, in a a good way of looking at it is it's how many years it would take an investor to break even or make or make back their original investment if earnings remain constant. So if you have a stock price of ten dollars per share and earnings per share one dollar per share, that's a PE of ten, um, and we assume that earnings will remain at one dollar per share, so no growth in earnings, then it would take ten years to break even. Mm-hmm. And, that, so, yeah, and, that, and that's not including time value of money and all that other stuff, but a, a simplified version of that uh, line of thinking. Really simplified version, exactly right. And um, so, all else being equal, if you can find two companies of equal quality and with equal growth and margin profiles, uh, a lower PE would be better. Mm-hmm. Um, that's the first thing I'll say. The second thing is maybe that you. As investors, we can't examine a PE ratio in a vacuum, so it has to be compared to something, whether it's the company's growth rate, whether it's the company's uh, returns on capital, or whether it's to a market multiple, a peer multiple, or the company's own historical multiple. So we, it, it's, it's relative to something. Um, and then I would say that companies with higher growth, more predictable growth, so not a lot of cyclicality in the business, and higher returns on equity tend to trade at higher P.E. ratios, just like you said. The flip side of that is companies with um, slower or deteriorating growth, cyclical earnings, so not a lot of predictability, and lower returns on equity tend to trade at lower P.E.s. Um, Since I tend to follow companies that are not cyclical and that have higher returns on equity, most of the companies I'm actually researching even for a value investor like myself, tend to have either market or above market PE ratios. So, yeah, that may come as a, as a surprise, but that, that that's where I'm focusing now. And then just for uh, just for reference, the S and P 500, which is typically thought of as a proxy for the stock market, it's currently trading at 24 times its last 12 months earnings and 18 times forward earnings. So those are are two rough benchmarks I'm using when looking at PE ratios. Yeah, so John, I'm glad you brought up ROE before. Um, I think anytime I have an investor talk about how they think about investing, the the structure, it's always important to say, like, you know, what metrics are you looking at? Do you have a 
checklist type approach, or what's the lens that you are looking at these companies through? Is, is ROE one of them? ROE is definitely one of them, Dylan. Um, I do use a checklist when I'm both investing for myself or recommending companies to either Inside Value or Motley Fool One. Um, in general, I tend to focus on uh, companies that I understand, one, companies that I admire, two, and then companies that I consider of the highest quality. And I'll define quality um, briefly as companies that generate that that generate uh, high returns on equity and high returns on capital over a long period of time, and that I think have the ability to continue to generate those high returns into the future. So they have a that's that's one indicator that the company has a competitive advantage, protecting its economics from the competition. So return on equity is definitely one of the ones I look for. I look for companies that generate a lot of free cash flow and that have a management team that intelligently knows how to allocate those free cash flows either into reinvesting back into the business at high returns on equity or um, returning money to shareholders through dividends or smart share repurchases. And then I look for strong balance sheets. So uh, maybe to illustrate some of the traits that you're looking for. Why don't we talk about a couple companies currently on your radar, or uh, a couple examples of what you uh, think to be really great value investments? Um, you know, when we were talking before the show, you said you wanted to talk about Apple and Accenture. Uh, why don't we hit Apple first? Uh, Forrest Gump's favorite fruit company. It's one of those stocks that has been perpetually cheap since about 2009. Uh, they're currently at a trailing P of about 10.5, roughly half that uh, uh, of the market right now at the moment. So. When you're looking at this company, what makes them a value investment for you, John? So, Dylan, I love how you teed it up um, because you said it's been perpetually cheap since about 2009, um, which means that uh, maybe I'm missing something. Maybe <laughs> the market's right. Definitely possible, and it's it's happened before, and it it will definitely happen in the future. Um, so, so I guess a question is is and, and a question that value investors struggle with a lot is is something cheap. Is it undervalued or is it a value trap? And so when I think about Apple, actually, um, I see a lot of pattern recognition with a, another company trading at a low multiple of earnings, which is Gilead. I know Gilead's technically not tech, but it's got tech in its, in its industry title because it's biotech. So I'll bring it up really quickly. So from a pattern recognition standpoint, both Apple and Gilead have super strong balance sheets. Both have generate a ton of free cash flow, have high returns on invested capital, both have super high market share. Apple has 14, about 14% share of the global smartphone market, but it generates more than 90% of industry profits. And Gilead has about 70% market share of the HIV market and 90% share of the hepatitis C market in the US. So just really established dominant businesses uh, both have what I believe to be high-quality management teams. Both pay almost an identical dividend that yields 2.3%. And both are st statistically or optically cheap, trading at less than 10 times enterprise value to free cash flow. Um, but on the other hand, and here's more similarities, and these are big buts, uh, both generate a majority of their revenue from one or two products. For Gilead, I think 90% of sales come from its treatments for hepatitis C and HIV. And for Apple, I think the iPhone accounts for about two-thirds of its revenue mm -hmm. or, or, or of its sales. Um, so both 
do not have a lot of revenue diversity. Both are facing slowing growth and both are facing some degree of pricing pressure. Uh, so the question is, you know, are they good investments? Are they value traps? I admire both companies. I actually um, prefer Apple and I'll talk a little bit more about Apple uh, primarily because I just understand it better. At this point, I have not really dived into Gilead's pipeline. I don't yet know how to value it. And so it's, it's high on my watch list, but I'm focusing on Apple and I have an investment in Apple uh, for, for a, f a few more reasons. So I think it trades at the low multiple that you mentioned because maybe a lot of investors think of it as a hardware company. And I just mentioned that two thirds of its revenue come from the iPhone. But uh, it's got four software platforms, fantastic software platforms that users love. It's got one for the iPhone and the iPad, one for Macs, one for the TV, and one for the watch. So it's definitely got a great accompanying software uh, portfolio there. And then the cool thing is it's got these continuity functions. So um, the iOS software can talk to Mac software. So you can start an email on your iPad and finish it on your Mac and do lots of other continuity functions, which I think is so cool. It's got a growing stream of, of high margin recurring services revenue. It is uh, rapidly growing its enterprise business through partnerships with IBM, SAP, and Cisco. Uh, and so I think the question becomes, does the iPhone uh, lose its pricing power and just become a commodity? And I think if we think about it, if we think about the iPhone or any other Apple device as the admission ticket into the Apple ecosystem, uh, then the company will be able to maintain its pricing power. So, you know, there's, there's no other way to access the over 1 million apps in the App Store or iTunes, or Apple TV, or Apple Pay, or iCloud, or HomeKit, or HealthKit, or CarPlay. You just can't access that without an Apple device. So if people want access into that ecosystem, they have to pay a price. So I think they're going to be able to maintain that, that, um, that pricing power. And then Apple has just amazingly loyal customers. So it's got it has an installed base of over 1 billion devices in, around the world. So if you think about that for a second, it's got nearly as many Apple devices out there as there are Facebook accounts. Yet uh, Apple devices cost hundreds of dollars. And then another sign of that loyalty is just Apple's customer attention ratios in the 85 to 90% range. Uh, and then you just you start looking at the numbers. You know, it's I mentioned it's got high returns on capital and free cash flows. It's got $150 billion in net cash. Um, it will have returned $200 billion to investors by early next year through dividends and buybacks. And then that, just that, that cash position, that balance sheet, it provides it with a lot of op optionality. I mean, I don't, I'm not smart enough to know what Apple's going to do next, but with $150 billion, I bet it's going to be pretty cool, or at least that's a bet that I'm making. So are they going to, you know, it, are they going to just really get the watch to catch on? Is the TV going to catch on? Is the Apple car going to catch on? Are they going to buy Tesla? Like, I don't know, <laughs> but they have a lot of firepower to do it. And, and to point to another potential growth driver, I mean, penetration in emerging markets is still pretty low. And uh, the infrastructure to support smartphones in the hands of every consumer in a lot of those emerging markets, uh, your China's, your India's, is still very low. So there, there could be a huge ramp there. Um, I will say, John, I'm with you on Apple. I'm a shareholder. 
um, you know, even if they don't meaningfully grow the business and manage just kind of more to hold a steady state, you're enjoying a dividend yield over two percent. Um, they've upped their quarterly dividend recently, ten percent, and um, it's the fourth time in four years they've done that. I think that's just going to continue. <clears throat> and you know, lastly, I mean, they have a huge uh, share buyback authorization, and they've executed very well, and I think done a lot to return value to shareholders. So uh, I think you kind of have to be happy about all that. Uh, I couldn't have said it better myself, Dylan. Yeah, thank you. And, and you know, like I said, they're going to return two hundred billion dollars by early next year. And when you're buying back shares at at ten percent free cash flow yield, that's compared to the risk free rate, which I read this morning actually is at an all time record. The ten year tre- U.S. Treasury bonds at one point four percent. So you compare a ten percent yield to that, or even if you compare it to the free cash flow yield on the S and P five hundred, which is about Five percent right now. Um, I'll take my chances there. Yeah. So uh, switching over to another tech player, John. Yeah, you said you also wanted to talk about Accenture. Uh, so this is a company that's probably most easily understood as a consulting company, but they have their hands in a whole bunch of different things. You want to talk about their business a little bit? Yeah. Thanks. Uh, I'd love to. So what I like about Accenture is uh, it's a way to invest in some of the most exciting technologies in the world without having to pick. Who's going to be the next? You know, who's who's going to be the winner, or what's going to be the next big thing? So there's, you know, there's handfuls of of cloud companies out there, handfuls of cybersecurity companies out there. Um, for me, it's hard to pick which one's going to be the winner. But with Accenture, they help their clients implement cloud, to, uh, cloud computing or cybersecurity, and so they're going to benefit. Just from the industry tailwinds, regardless of who turns out to be a winner. Um, yeah, you mentioned you know it's a technology consulting and outsourcing company. It's got a strong balance sheet again with three point five billion dollars um, more in cash than it has in debt. It's got strong free cash flows. It generates fifty percent returns on equity. So there's that return equity number again. And then the predictability and consistency that we talked about earlier. It's increased revenues in 16 out of the past 18 years. The revenue growth is not always, um, you know, really strong, but it's consistent. So I think in the past three years, if you look at 2013 through 15, revenue grew at about a 4% CAGR, which is not bad uh, in a slow growth world, but uh, it has increased constant currency. Uh, revenue growth by double digits now for seven consecutive quarters, and it's guiding for full-year revenue growth this year of at least nine and a half percent. So you come off, it's coming off of four percent revenue growth rate, and that's ramping up to double digits. So what's happening is Accenture is just perfectly positioned to take advantage of the new industrial revolution that we're seeing with cloud, uh, cyber, and social and mobile. In fact, those businesses now account for 40% of Accenture's total revenue, and they're growing in a 30% clip. And, so, and just, just sorry, com- just, yeah, just to ahead. clarify, John, when you say Kager before, just for listeners that may not know, compound annual growth rate, that's what you're talking about there. Yeah, just yeah. basically uh, average growth rate um, annualized out over a period of time. Compound annual growth rate, exactly right. Um, yeah, so you, it's, you've got this company with a huge competitive advantage. Great management, rock solid balance sheet, and it's just got a ton of business momentum right now, uh, benefiting from this new industrial revolution. And then just kind of, you know, to top it off, it's 
the 38th most valuable brand in the world, according to Brand Z. Uh, the CEO has 93% approval ratings on Glassdoor.com. 94% of the Fortune 100 are its clients, and its client retention ratios are off the chart. So of its top 100 clients, 97 have been clients for the past 10 years. Wow. 14 consecutive years as Fortune's most one of Fortune's most admired companies, seven consecutive years as one of Fortune's 100 best companies to work for, nine consecutive years as uh, Ethisphere's world's most ethical company. So you're getting all of that at what I think is a, a fair price, and 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 I'm I'm happy to um, to be an owner right now. And currently they're at a PE of just under 20. Um, they are an international company. They're headquartered in Ireland. Um, they were a company that was hit particularly hard by the Brexit news because of that. They've rebounded a bit. They're still down about five percent, um, but you know it seems like an opportunity uh, for people that might be interested in them. If if you are interested in following up with Accenture, uh, John, are there any important metrics to look at? I know their business is a little bit different than what we might typically talk about on the tech show. Yeah, there's a you know there's a um, a unique metric in the in the consulting industry that it that Accenture reports every quarter when it releases its earnings. It's called the book to bill ratio. It's basically an indicator of future demand. So it measures um, new orders relative to actual business performed and billed. So a ratio of one times or higher uh, is generally an indicator of strong future demand. Uh, beyond that, you know, it's just I look at I look at returns on capital. I look at I look at free cash flow relative to both its reported net income and its sales. And um, I look at its growth rates. And and I and, and yeah, like you said, you know, it's domiciled in Europe. It got hit a bit with the Brexit news. But that's maybe an opportunity for uh, long term um, owners to either add to their position or for people that are interested to maybe take a first look. Awesome. Uh, you know, John, so you've been at while you're remote now. You were at Full HQ for a while, and you know on Fridays uh, we'll occasionally have tours come in. We actually just had one stop into the studio, and we have a long-term IF listener uh, who seemed very eager to ask a question. You mind? We don't normally do this, but you mind if he comes in the studio and uh, just sees what you have to say about something? I would love that. All right, uh, here we are. You mind saying your name? Oh, uh, hey there, Gene. Uh, my name is Wilson Paquette. I'm from the city, Altus, Arkansas. Really, really. Love your show. Uh, thank you for all of the guidance that you have given me for the last 10 years with The Motley Fool. Thank you, sir. R really, really glad to have you. Well, no, a serious question for you, though, Jan, is I've been listening to Dylan's show for a long time, and a couple weeks ago, he had uh, some in Simon Innovator was on the show. Simon Erickson, yeah. Right, the innovator guy that was saying that PEs that were high PEs were better stocks to buy. Uh, but from what you're saying, it kind of sounds like you're saying that the low PE stocks are better stocks to buy. And I just wanted to ask you, Jan, uh, is the P or is the E more important? Well, I'm not going to uh, take the other side of an argument against Simon Innovator Erickson, that's for sure. But um, like I, like I kind of said in the beginning, you know, I, I focus on, on the, what I consider to be the most highest quality companies in the world, and those rarely trade at low PEs. So 
I'm I'm in the I'm in the Simon Erickson camp for sure. Both feet in the Simon Erickson camp. That was a very good answer for having something totally sprung on you. Uh, listeners, if you can't tell, Simon Erickson decided to hop into the studio and have a little fun with John. My cover is hey, blown, John. <laughs> hey, hey, Simon, how you doing, man? I, I'm sure you didn't know it was me the entire time. Well, I, I, I think I picked up on it about halfway, um, but uh, great question. You know, even though you put on an accent, it still sounded exactly like you. I tried so hard to conceal. Yeah. But... Cover is blown. John, I can't wait to at least look back on this video at the first five seconds of your face just to see if there's any doubt at all in your mind that it wasn't really me. I, 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 I think you'll see a, a big smile, and I may even crack the laugh once I realize it was you. <laughs> um, so we're, we're having some fun here in the studio, but I think these two different shows highlight the different investing approaches we have here at The Fool and um, our openness to thinking about things a little bit differently. And I will say, Simon and John, for some of your differences, you do share some holdings. And I was looking down at what you guys own over at Fool.com, because all of our holdings are publicly available. And you are both TJX and Apple shareholders. Um, I think maybe down the road, we could do a show profiling a couple things uh, that you both agree on, and some businesses that you both really like, based on the two different lenses that you look at publicly traded companies. I, I would love that. I would love that. And I, uh, I still remember taking my uh, analyst development program class on innovation and disruptive co- disruptive companies from Simon. So anytime I can, uh, uh, you know, chat with Simon about anything, I'm I'm up for it. Yeah, I'm up for it too. I'll speak in my natural voice, I promise. And uh, <laughs> I also have a ton of holdings in my portfolio too that are more considered value stocks, uh, just like the ones John's been describing. Yeah. Um, John, anything else? Thanks for being such a good sport. But but any other things you want to point out before I let you go? No, you know, I just uh, I'm. Grateful to be on the show. I'd love to to come back on at a later date. I think you know, just with the Brexit news right now, um, watch lists are really important. You know, do your research before an idea, an opportunity presents itself. And so, you know, whether it's on Inside Value or or Motley Fool One or with Simon on MDP and 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 Rule Breakers, you know, we're trying to do our research months or even years in advance of when these opportunities present themselves, and then. You know, then we're ready to make a buying decision. Um, you know, when when the time comes. Wise words to live by. Well, listeners, that does it for this episode of Industry Focus. If you have any questions or just want to reach out and say hey, shoot us an email at industryfocus@fool.com, or you can tweet us at mfindustryfocus. If you're looking for more of our stuff, you can subscribe on iTunes or check out the Fool's family of shows at fool.com/podcasts. We've also got a listener survey we'd love your help with. It'll help us serve you better, and it'll just take a couple of minutes. You can actually just do it anonymously. So if you want to help us out, we'd really appreciate it. The survey is online at podcast.fool.com. As always, people on the program may own companies discussed on the show, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against stocks mentioned. So don't buy or sell based based solely on what you hear here. For Simon Erickson, John Rotanti, I'm Dylan Lewis. Thanks for listening to Fool On.